If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't worry. Justin's going to help us out, and he's going to put scriptures on the screen for us if you don't have a Bible with you. We're not going to read the text to begin with, but we are going to read the text in its entirety as we work through this morning's message, okay? So we are going to be looking at John chapter 4, verse 1 through 30, uh, and we'll read it all in its entirety as we go through the text, go through the message. It was early morning in a Samaritan city, the Samaritan city of Sychar, before the sun had fully risen, before the heat, the punishing heat of the day had arrived. This was the ideal time for women of the Samaritan city to head out to the well, about a mile outside the city. They would head out to the well and get all the water they needed for the daily chores and daily cooking, and they would go out earliest to avoid the heat, the heat of the day. But instead of rising early and joining the other women on this particular day, one woman lay in her bed staring at the ceiling. Lying beside her was a man who was not her husband. This was not socially acceptable. But this woman bore so much stigma and rejection from others due to her previous five marriages that she gave up trying to maintain any semblance of a moral reputation. She had in the past joined the other women at the well only to receive disapproving looks and judgmental muttering. And this became so much too much to bear that she decided not to join the women anymore. She'd go later. She'd go by herself. Even if others weren't talking about her, she felt like they were. It was not as if this woman was without religion or even a sense of morality. After all, this woman was a Samaritan. The Samaritans worshipped the God of the Scriptures, and they would claim they worshipped the God of the Jews. They embraced the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, though slightly edited. At one point, the Samaritans actually even had their own temple, and they prided themselves on the fact that there in Samaria was Mount Gerizim. This is the place, according to the Samaritans, the most holy place where worship should take place. But, in fact, their religion was a corrupted religion. To them, the Jews worshiping in Judea were the ones that were wrong. The Jews worshiping in Jerusalem were the ones who were wrong. The temple in Jerusalem was the corrupted religion. But in fact, the Samaritan culture, this woman's entire culture, including her religion, really came from dubious roots. When the kingdom of Israel was divided into northern and southern kingdoms about a thousand years earlier, Jeroboam chose the city of Shechem to be the capital. To discourage people from going to the temple in Jerusalem to worship, what he did is he just erected his own altars and really established his own religion. He put golden calves in the north and the south and led people to worship them. He even went further and appointed his own priests, established his own altars, instituted his own feasts. In doing so, Jeroboam instituted a perverse religion, combining paganism with the worship of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. His new religion would be centered in Shechem and Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And so, 
During this time, there arose competing worship centers and a growing animosity between the race of the Samaritans and the race of the Jews. Many years later, God sent the Assyrians in judgment against the northern kingdom, and the Assyrians led hundreds of thousands of Samarians into captivity in Assyria. The king of Assyria then took peoples from other conquered lands and resettled them in Samaria. Samaria at this time then was populated by foreigners and those Samaritan stragglers who were left behind from the captivity. With the resettlement of those defeated peoples who came and were settled in Samaria, they brought their religion with them, and they brought their false gods with them, and they brought their idols with them, and they erected altars, and they erected shrines. And so now the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, uh, saw paganism rampant. The new settlers didn't have it easy, however. The paganism and what always accompanies idolatry and paganism is immorality as well. And, and God judged Samaria. And so early on, as these pagan settlers came into the northern kingdom, what happened was God judged in such a way that lions who were native to the area kind of became wild and turned upon the inhabitants of the northern kingdom. It was a menace. And when the king of Assyria heard of the troubles they were having in the northern kingdom, uh, what he did is he came up with an idea and said, you know, they must be suffering there in the northern kingdom in Samaria because they don't know the law of the God of the land. That was his idea, king of Assyria. And so he said, you know what we should do? We should send a priest from the Samaritans, one who we took away captive. We'll send him back and let him teach the people the law of the God of the land. And so that's what they did. And so this priest came back to Samaria And there taught the people the way of the Lord. But even then, what the Samaritan priest taught was orthodoxy based upon the false system that Jeroboam had erected. This was syncretism at its worst. The diverse nations of Samaria worshiping their false gods, priests teaching what they believed was true Judaism, all mingled together. Meanwhile, socially, The Jews left behind in Samaria intermarried with these peoples who were resettled into that land, which they weren't supposed to do. Jews were to be distinct. And so, consequently, there was a great conflict which arose between the north and the south. In the north, you had the Samaritans intermarrying, intermingling, uh, pagan religion, all those foreigners there. And in the south, you had Jews, Jerusalem, the temple. Eventually, the southern kingdom also, however, would corrupt itself, and they would suffer the judgment of God, and they'd be carried away into Babylonian captivity. When God permitted them to return from that Babylonian captivity, when the Persians came into power, these exiles came back from Babylon, back into the southern kingdom, and they were given permission to rebuild the temple, which Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. Well, now I want you to see an interesting account in Ezra chapter 4 where we begin to see the origins of some of the animosity between Samaritans and Jews. Ezra chapter 4 verse 1 says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that they returned exiles, that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. You get what's happening here? 
The Jews in the southern kingdom who had the temple, uh, there they have the holy city. They've come back. They're going to rebuild the temple. And then some Samaritans come from the north down to the south and say, you're building the temple to worship Yahweh? Well, we've been worshiping the whole time you've been gone. We've been worshiping him in our kingdom, on our altars, and eventually even in their own temple. And so they're saying, well, let us, let us help you. Let us help you rebuild this temple. It's, it's our God too. Well, look at the response of the Jews who've returned from captivity. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, Do you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God? But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. In other words, get lost. Get out of here. You got nothing. This is, it doesn't concern you. You've got no part in this whatsoever. It says, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so now you're not going to help us or you're not going to allow us to help you rebuild, even though we believe we're worshiping the same God. Well, uh, then we're going to do everything we can to stop this building project. Why? Because in their minds, the true place of worship is Mount Gerizim in Samaria, not here in Jerusalem. They don't want to see that temple rebuilt. From that point on, the Samaritans tried and succeeded for a time to prevent the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. The resentment and animosity between Samaritans and Jews continued to grow. As far as the Jews of Judea were concerned, the Samaritans were defiled people who abandoned true religion. Intermingled with foreign nations, had no claims on Jewish identity. For all their talk of worshiping the same God, they were actually apostates. That's what the Jews in Jerusalem felt. As far as the Samaritans were concerned, their version of Judaism was true religion and true worship. And true worship had to be offered not in Jerusalem, but in Mount Gerizim. Divisions not only continued, but escalated during the time after the close of the Old Testament and prior to the coming of Christ. In 128 BC, there was a man named John Hyrcanus, a Jewish king of the Maccabean dynasty, and he defeated the Samaritan nation and actually enslaved Samaritans and destroyed their temple on Mount Gerizim. That temple, temple was never rebuilt. However, the Samaritans still believed that worship must take place in Mount Gerizim. Their version of the Pentateuch actually was edited by them so that they added texts which pointed to Mount Gerizim and they excluded everything after the Pentateuch, uh, which seemed to indicate that true worship was to take place in Jerusalem. The hostilities between Samaritan and Jew continued in the first century. Early on, during one Passover celebration, some of the Samaritans came to Jerusalem during Passover. And they left bones or, or maybe even dead bodies within the temple in an attempt to desecrate the temple. Historically, you would raise and destroy our temple. We're going to desecrate your temple. From that point on, the Jews excluded Samaritans from participating in the feasts. In Jesus' day, Jews avoided dealings with the Samaritans. For a Jew to pass through Samaritan land was to potentially expose them to ridicule and heckling and even bloodshed. Remember that time when Jesus and his disciples were going to pass through a Samaritan city? And they asked for permission to pass through. And the Bible says that because they were headed to Jerusalem, the Samaritans wouldn't allow them to pass through. You're going to Jerusalem? That's where you think you should worship? Uh, No, we're not going to let you pass through to go to Jerusalem. If you're going to worship, worship here in Mount Gerizim. What, What was the disciples' response? 
Lord, would you have us call down fire from heaven to wipe them out? (laughs) This was mutual prejudice, wasn't it? From Samaritan to Jew and from Jew to Samaritan. The woman in our text in John 4 is a Samaritan woman. Hers was a corrupted version of Judaism. But beyond the theological differences between Samaritan and Jew, it seems that this woman's religion really had no effect whatsoever on her morality or upon her lifestyle. In this woman existed a serious emptiness, as we will see. The woman in our text has an emptiness which she sought to fill through illegitimate means. It appears her chosen idol, and we all have chosen idols, don't we? It appears her chosen idol was men. She longed for joy or happiness or security or meaning, and she felt that she could attain it through relationships. She burned through five marriages and still hadn't learned her lesson. The emptiness she kept trying to fill remained empty. Even now, with her living boyfriend laying next to her, she was still longing for something. You may know some like this. You may be one like this. There's an internal emptiness inside of you, and you haven't yet discovered that that emptiness can be filled by the Lord Jesus Christ and through your relationship with God. And so you sought to fill that hole with all sorts of things. In fact, maybe you can relate directly to this woman and say, I've been one who's tried to fill that emptiness through illicit relationships. So, sometime after the other women had been to the well and back with their supplies of water, our woman decided to head to the well. She goes to the well again about a mile outside of the city, and this particular well was rich in history. It had actually been dug by the patriarch Jacob. And just a few hundred yards away from this well actually existed the burying place of Joseph. And so she grabs her water jar. She heads to the well at about noon, the hottest time of the day, but she had rather endure the heat of the sun than the scorching looks and burning comments of the other women. And this is where our text picks up in John 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John gives us a helpful parenthesis. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This woman's shock was twofold. She comes to the well and sees a man sitting there. And first, the shock was because, you know, Jesus was clearly a Jew. He looked like a Jew. He was dressed like a Jew. And Jews don't talk to Samaritans. That's shock number one. Jews don't interact with Samaritans. Number two, the shock is, not only are you a Jew and I a Samaritan, but you're a man and I'm a woman. And that was frowned upon socially for he to have this conversation with her. Even if she were a Jewish woman, this interaction would would have been highly unusual. But Jesus was there asking her for a drink. Why? Why? Well, because he was thirsty. 
but also because, as we're going to see, God himself was seeking this woman. Look in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus sat at the well, asked the woman for water, so that he could speak to her specifically using this metaphor. Understand that this is orchestrated. Understand that God in his providence has arranged this appointment. Jesus sits at the well and uh, begins to use or capitalize upon this idea of well and water because he wants to lead this woman to understand her need for salvation. He didn't want to talk to her about water. He wants to talk to her about eternal life. But this metaphor is helpful because it was this woman, not Jesus, who was suffering the greatest thirst. She did not have eternal life. She was spiritually empty. She had spent her life dealing with that emptiness and trying to find satisfaction through illegitimate means in man after man after man, in relationship after relationship after relationship. And now she was living in out-and-out sin. There's no use trying to protect my reputation anymore. There's no use uh, trying to you know, keep these relationships within the framework of marriage at this point because my relationship's already shot, so I might as well just shack up with the guy. He's helping her along so that she can eventually realize that the emptiness she feels can be filled and only can be filled by God. And that can only happen through salvation through Him. Look in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. The woman said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Like Nicodemus in the previous chapter, this woman's not catching what Jesus is laying down here. This Nicodemus didn't understand what it meant to be born again, and this woman's not catching that he's not actually talking about physical water. Having no idea the significance or irony of what she's saying, she then asks Jesus, are you greater than Jacob? Well, yeah, she's going to discover he's greater than Jacob. Although Jacob, the patriarch, whose name would be later changed to Israel, would be the progenitor of the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus was even greater than Jacob. Jacob dug a well of water, and was used by the Lord to bring forth a chosen race of people, Israel. Jesus, on the other hand, had come with living water, eternal life, and by it would bring forth a new Israel, a new people comprised of men and women from every race. She doesn't know this yet, hasn't clued in what Jesus is talking about, doesn't know he's talking about something other than physical water. So verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. So, so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Well, that would help her out, wouldn't it? She, she doesn't got to come out here in the middle of the day in the heat. She, she can avoid all that, all that chaos and all that uh, drama of being here with the other women. Give me this water so I don't have to come here anymore. She's not there yet. She, she, she doesn't know. But, but she is now thinking in terms of thirst and need. She at least now is thinking about, oh, if I have what he's giving me, then that's going to satisfy me in some way, right? No, but she's still thinking physically, but she's starting to get there. 
However, Jesus now has her thinking about her own needs in terms of thirst and satisfaction. And so look in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband. Well, what is this? We're talking about water, and now you're saying, go call my husband. I got to ask my husband's permission for you to give me some water? What what is this? Why this strange shift all of a sudden from water to go call your husband? Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Again, this seems strange. Strange way to to, to go in this conversation. From talk of water to talk about her lifestyle. From talk of eternal life to talk about her love life. What's Jesus doing here? Jesus has set the stage so that this talk about the woman's many marriages and her current illicit relationship, her current sinful lifestyle, is set in the context of this whole idea of thirst and need and satisfaction. He would have her understand that she has been going through life with an emptiness which can only be satisfied by God, which he's tried to satisfy through relationships. Relationships were her idols, and she hoped the next one would make her complete. And so now Jesus has set the stage. We're talking about thirst. We're talking about emptiness. We're talking about satisfaction. We're talking about the fact that I can give you that which satisfies. And now he's drawn attention to her personal life. So here, Jesus sits at Jacob's well with a Samaritan with a Samaritan woman, with a Samaritan woman with an, who is an overt sinner. Why? Because as we said earlier, and as we're going to see, because God himself was seeking this woman specifically. Look in verse 19. We see the woman's response. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I mean, he nailed it. How does he know this about her? Then she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And so Jesus' knowledge of her lifestyle could mean only one thing. He's a prophet. But she's thinking, he's a Jew. Well, that raises a question. Here's a man who knows everything that I've done, which you'll say later. Uh, He's a Jew, but I'm a Samaritan. What am I to make of this? And so she brings up this theological debate Uh, Because the Samaritans say we worship here, and the Jews say we worship there. If he's a prophet, perhaps he can answer this debate once and for all. This age-old question, is it Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? Jesus, however, just keeps pursuing her soul. Look at his response in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Centuries of debate regarding the true location of worship. There were there was resentment, there was animosity, there was division, there was hatred, 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 there was prejudice, there was even bloodshed. Yet Jesus addresses the question. That's led to all of this division. The biggest question which divided Jews and Samaritans. And what does he say? He says, the day is coming when that question that has caused this division will be completely irrelevant. 
No more would Samaritans contend that they were the true worshipers, and no more would Jews answer back that, no, we are the true worshipers. Instead, he says, the day is coming when genuine worship will not take place on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. And now listen, the Jews had an advantage at this point because the temple in Gerizim was gone. And what Jesus is saying, frankly, is eventually even the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. He then makes it clear, however, that the Samaritan religion was not true Judaism. He does take a side sort of speak and says, we worship, we Jews worship what we know. You do not. Salvation is from the Jews. And so he does say explicitly that Judaism in the south, in Jerusalem, that temple is legit. Why does he do that? Well, because she's going to have to accept that he's the Messiah in just a moment. If she's going to accept that he's the Messiah, then she's going to have to accept that uh, Judaism is the true religion because Jesus is a Jew. And so if she's going to accept a Jewish Messiah, uh, he has to establish the fact that, yes, as far as this debate is concerned, the Jews have it right. Verse 23, he says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's coming and it's now here. The time has come that it will be clearly seen who are true worshipers. And it's not going to have anything anything to do with location. The true worshipers will be those who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He continues in verse 23. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So, why... Is Jesus sharing? I mean, this is deep stuff. This is like new revelation. And he's sharing this with a sinful Samaritan woman sitting on the edge of a well. Why is he doing this? Why has he sat down at the well at noon in the heat of the day, precisely when this particular woman was going to come to draw water? Why was he reaching across the racial barriers and talking to a Samaritan? Why was he breaking social convention by talking to a woman? Why was he risking his reputation by conversing with a woman who was an out-and-out sinner? Because, verse 23, God was seeking her. It's not about Samaritans or Jews. It's not about Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. It's about her as an individual. Get your mind off of the theological question. Get your mind off of Mount Gerizim. Get your mind off of Jerusalem. If you want to know what true worship is, God is seeking worshipers, and he is calling and drawing you to become one of those true worshipers. It's about her soul. She's a lost sinner. She's captive to her sin. She's in need of deliverance. She's suffering under her own spiritual emptiness, and neither her sin nor her false religion could satisfy her, so Jesus has brought that which can satisfy. She needed salvation. She needed eternal life. She needed Jesus. And God sought her out so that she could have it all. Verse 25. This woman responds to this talk about true worship. I know that Messiah is coming. He who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. He'll settle this once and for all. He's going to come with authority. Then we'll know for sure. And then Jesus responds in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. It's remarkable because it's very rare to see such 
clear revelation as to the identity of Jesus from his own lips. And to whom does he give this revelation? A sinful Samaritan woman. With that, Jesus has chosen a sinful Samaritan woman to be the first and one of the only to receive such a direct, explicit revelation from his own lips. I who speak to you am he. In other words, everything I just told you about worship is true. Everything I just said about the day coming and now being here when you're not going to worship in Gerizim or worship in Jerusalem, it's authoritative. It is true. I am that Messiah. He's saying, I have given you the answers to the questions of worship and worshipers. In other words, God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And these are those to whom he will grant eternal life. And woman, he sent me to you. With that, Jesus revealed to this woman that the time was coming and was here, that all true worship was to be centered not on Mount Gerizim and not in Jerusalem, but where? Upon him. He was the locus of genuine worship. This is what Jesus has already revealed in chapter 2. Remember, he goes into the temple, he cleanses the temple, and he casts out all those who were buying and selling and so on. And he says, this is my father's house. It ought to be a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves. And he casts everybody out, doesn't allow anybody to carry anything in and out. And he just holds the temple and he teaches there. And when some approach him and say, tell us why you've done, what authority do you have to do what you're doing here? And he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He's talking about the temple of his body. What he's saying is, I am the temple. I am the temple. He's saying uh, something new has occurred. You want to come to God, come to God through me. Jesus has already established himself as the locus of worship. He's already established himself as the temple, and he's doing it again. Not Gerizim, not Jerusalem. The time has come. For true worshipers are going to worship the Father through me. Remarkably then, what we witness is a sinful Samaritan woman, who would have been banned from temple worship anyway on various counts, sitting directly beside God's new temple, Jesus, and being offered a personal invitation to come and worship. But what about the fact that she was a Samaritan? Through Jesus, all racial prejudices are eliminated. What about the fact that she was a woman? Well, through Jesus in worship, gender is not a factor when it comes to worship through Jesus. What about her immorality and sin? Well, through Jesus, her sin would be forgiven. The day had come when those who would worship in spirit and in truth would be comprised of unworthy men and women from every race, in every background. Through Jesus, the moral failures would be forgiven. The racial prejudices would be eliminated and gender divisions would be healed. This true religion would see worshipers transformed by the Holy Spirit, who would be endowed by the Spirit and would be given eternal life and would experience what? Full spiritual satisfaction. This woman has been sought and found by God. The Father has introduced this woman to to his Son, the Messiah. Jesus had come to offer her true satisfaction, true acceptance. 
through faith in him, she would receive eternal life, springing up in her soul like living water. She would never have to return again to the dry well of sin. She would never have to return again to the dry well of immorality, trying to quench her spiritual thirst. She could stop trying to draw water from the well of illicit relationships. Men. Instead, she could find true joy and satisfaction through Jesus as one who worshipped her God in spirit and in truth. The question is, would she believe? Does she get it at this point? Is she still thinking water at this point? Or does she get it? Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They had gone into town to get food. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. In the coming weeks, we're going to see the the consequence of that. We're going to see that many of the Samaritans actually come to Jesus and believe as a result of her initial testimony. This woman who was so ashamed of her current state that she avoided coming to the well because she didn't want to interact with other women, runs into town and, and, and draws all eyes to herself and begins to testify that she believes she met the Messiah, who she says told her all that she'd ever done. Now, did Jesus tell her all that she'd ever done? doesn't appear <laughs> that he told her everything she's ever done, but he did tell her the things that she most regretted. She did, he did tell her the things that most apparently defined her. He did tell her the things that most haunted her. So she proclaims to others that she believes she's found the Christ. As a result of her words, many begin to come to Jesus and they believe. And with that, Jesus not only saves her and grants her eternal life, but then proceeds to send her as one of the very first heralds of the gospel a Samaritan woman with a sinful reputation. And so as we conclude, notice something in verse 28. Do with this what you will. It's hard to know whether or not John intends this to be significant or not. But clearly we're dealing with the metaphor of the well and the water and the emptiness and water in a jar from the well versus living water that springs up and so on. But it says in verse 28 that as she, it dawns on her who Jesus is and what he's talking about, that she runs into the city and leaves her water jar behind. Leaves her water jar behind. It's as if to symbolize that although this woman came to draw water from Jacob's well, she instead found herself filled with living water by one greater than Jacob. With that realization, uh, her mind's off of that physical water. She runs into town overflowing with spiritual satisfaction and spilling that over onto all who would be willing to hear her. And so this woman, it appears, has been saved. The Father is looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus Christ had a divine appointment in God's providence to sit at that well because God was seeking her specifically and she was saved.
So in conclusion, how about you this morning? Is there anything in this account of the Samaritan woman that you can see to be true about you? Have you been guilty of seeking satisfaction in your personal idols? Might not be men, might not be relationships, might not be women. It could be something else. Are you guilty of coping with life and seeking happiness through sinful thoughts and behavior instead of finding true satisfaction in Christ? Are you guilty of using relationships to fill the emptiness that only God can fill? Are you one this morning who is beholden to a even maybe a religious system that really leaves you empty because it has no real power to transform your soul? Or how about these questions? Do you potentially this morning bear a stigma due to your past sins that you just can't seem to shake? Have you allowed your past sins to define you and to really take that upon yourselves as identity? Do you have an overwhelming sense of unworthiness before God? Have you messed up your life so that you now feel out of reach of God's grace and forgiveness? What do we learn? When she thought she was entirely unworthy and thought she would never encounter the Messiah, thought she was out of reach of God and out of reach of true worship, God himself sought her out. The message this morning is that God's love through the Son, Jesus Christ, tears down any and all of these walls. He seeks unworthy men and women from every race, no matter their background, and invites them to believe in Him. The invitation stands this morning. And so will you trust Jesus and Jesus alone to give you eternal life? If so, He will save. He will adopt you. He will forgive you. He will transform you from whatever you are into a true worshiper. And if you're here this morning and you know that you are a Christian, what a wonderful reminder of who we are in Jesus and what we once were. We don't stand in judgment of the woman at the well because we understand we've all come from a similar place. We've all come to the faith as unworthy sinners recipients of God's grace who first sought us out and introduced us to Jesus when we were in no way worthy. And now he's given us what? He's given us his Holy Spirit, welling up into eternal life. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this wonderful account so early in the gospel. Jesus already signaling that he's different. He's breaking the social conventions of his day. He's seems to be betraying some of the religious expectations of his day. Through Jesus, we understand that you are seeking true worshipers and that these true worshipers span, span the spectrum. Men, women, all races, no matter the background even no matter the sin committed. But you're looking for men and women who will acknowledge their sin, repent of that sin, understand that Jesus delivers from that sin, trust Him and Him alone for forgiveness, and Him and Him alone as Savior and Lord. Lord, we just thank You for the joy that it is to preach the gospel, to share Jesus with others. We thank you that all of us in one way or another were like this woman at the well. 
We all have come from a place of unworthiness, sinfulness. We all have been recipients of your mercy and your grace. We have all been sought out by you. We have all been introduced to Jesus through your grace. Lord, we thank you for this. Now, Lord, this morning I just pray for any who are not yet saved. I pray that they'd see their need for Jesus. I pray that maybe they'd recognize the areas in their life where some of their behaviors, some of their habits, some of the sin in their life, just futile attempts to fill a void, to fill emptiness, an emptiness that cannot be legitimately filled, fully satisfied except through you. I pray that they'd see their need for Jesus. And then, Lord, help us just to celebrate Jesus and what he's done for us. Help us to celebrate the free salvation that we have in him. And help us also to have heart and have compassion upon those like this woman. Help us to show the love of Jesus to others in the culture, others who might have a similar background, similar experience, similar feelings of unworthiness as this woman does. Help us to love and to show compassion and to share the gospel with with men and women like this as well. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.